Our scripture today is from Mark 6, verses 1 to 32. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all of this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown, in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Then Jesus went from village to village, teaching the people. And he called his twelve disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. Wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. So the disciples went out, telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. Herod Antipas, the king, soon heard about Jesus because everyone was talking about him. Some were saying, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. This is why he can do such miracles. Others said, he's the prophet Elijah. Still others said, He's a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. When Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has come back from the dead. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been, tell she had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But without Herod's approval, she was powerless, for Herod respected John, and knowing that he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Herodias's chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. Then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his guests. Ask me for anything you like, the king said to the girl, and I will give it to you. He even vowed, I will give you whatever you ask, up to half my kingdom. She went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? Her mother told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. Then the king deeply regretted what he had said, but because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in the prison, brought his head on a tray, and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came to get his body and buried it in a tomb. 
the apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, Let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Patty. Good morning, TCC. I have a lot to get through this morning, so bear with me. It's a big chunk of scripture. Well, how many of you like a good movie? A few of us like a good movie? Yeah, I think the thing, the, the best characteristic about movies that I love is the unfolding story of good conquering evil. You know what I'm talking about? A good story where good is conquering evil. I, I think of something like Lord of the Rings. You got any Lord of the Rings fans? A few of us, okay, yeah. This epic story of this little hobbit wandering and, and taking this ring uh, to Mordor to, to save the people of Middle-earth. It's a great, great story. Um, maybe for some of us, we're Avengers fans. How many of us like the Avengers? Yeah, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. There are so few hands went up for that one. That surprises me. How many of you have seen Avengers? Okay, okay, my illustrations won't land flat on their face. The coming together of Earth's mightiest heroes to conquer against the universe's greatest um, evil people who are trying to destroy Earth. Or maybe those of you who have granddaughters or or daughters can relate more to the Disney princess um, group of movies where we watch as these stories unfold, as these, these women fight against their evil stepmoms and the wicked witches of the world. Good conquering evil. And these movies are full of characters that are on mission. These movies are full of characters who look at the world around them and realize that things are not necessarily as they should be. Characters who see that that evil is conquering and instead of just watching that happen, they do something about it. They get involved. They go on mission to save the day. While we may not be carrying a ring to Mordor, and though we may not be searching for the Infinity Stones, and though we may not be battling against our evil mother and stepmoms or evil witches, we too are on mission. We too are people who are on mission. If you're tracking with us in the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus has been on mission. And, and God looked down on, on humanity and, and not recognized, but He knew that things were not as they were supposed to be. So God sends His Son, the person of Jesus, who is on this mission of restoring things back to how they're supposed to be. Jesus, who goes around finding people who are sick. People who are suffering. People who are being oppressed by evil spirits. And he declares the message of the kingdom of God. And he heals those who are sick. Delivers them of the demons. And he starts to reestablish things back into right relationship with God. Well, in our text today, Jesus sends out his disciples to continue doing what he has been doing. 
Jesus sends out his disciples to engage in the world in such a way where he's saying, go about, identify the places where things are not as they're supposed to be and do something about it. Jesus has been demonstrating to them what that looks like. So the disciples go and they do the same. And we too, those of us sitting in this room, have the same invitation from Jesus. We have an example of that here in Mark chapter 6. But we can think of verses like Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus says to his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples. Go and take this good news message and and take it to the ends of the earth. Or Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus says, you're going to receive power when my Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. You're going to go and you're going to be on mission for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The invitation to be on mission is one that goes out to every Christian, everyone who has a relationship with Jesus. We are encouraged to continue on in the mission that Jesus began. However, if you are anything like me, you may not often feel as though you're on mission. You may not feel like you're engaging the way that you think you should. Or maybe you might feel as though you're discouraged on your mission. If you're anything like me, you might read the Gospels and and get excited about all that Jesus is doing, but then really struggle to see how you might even begin to do the same. We can read about Jesus' preaching, His encouragement to people. We can read about Him bringing justice. And we can think to ourselves that these are great ideas and great concepts, but what does that mean for me? We can think about taking the message of Jesus to our homes or to our workplaces. But then think, well, my workplace is extremely hostile towards Christianity. My coworkers don't want anything to do with religion. My friends, they don't like it when I talk about church. And all these realities at work in our lives can be discouraging. It can be things that keep us from mission. Well, in our text this morning, we come across two accounts of opposition. Two moments where we might wonder how things are going to turn out. But what I believe we learn from them is that opposition shouldn't keep us from mission. This morning I want to spend most of our time looking at Jesus sending out the twelve apostles. But before I get there, I believe we really need to pay attention to how Mark contextualizes this story. As Patty read for us, we we read about Jesus coming back to his hometown. And this story is really interesting. Jesus' homecoming. Now I don't know how many of you are NBA basketball fans, but this past June... Uh, Canada had something to be very excited about as the Toronto Raptors won the final. And, and, and there was this great moment there. And what's amazing is the reception that they received in Toronto. I have a picture here of, this is just one picture of the parade that was happening downtown Toronto. And they reckon that over a million people flooded downtown Toronto to celebrate with the Toronto Raptors. And when I think about Jesus' story... And I think about all the things that he's been doing. Don't you think that Jesus should have had a great reception coming back to his hometown? 
Don't you think that his friends and his family would have been like, man, Jesus, this is amazing. So many people are being healed. So many people are learning about the kingdom of God. But instead of that, his homecoming looks a lot more like this. He, instead of being embraced and welcomed, Jesus is met with suspicion. Jesus is talked down to. When Mark points out that they identify him as the son of Mary, essentially they're calling him a bastard. They make fun of him. They question his ministry. And in verses 5 and 6, we read that Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. He marveled at their unbelief. I don't know about you, but I find home a place where I'm encouraged and supported. And I read about Jesus' experience here and I wonder how he thought he could carry on. What's fascinating about this chapter is that this isn't the only mention of, of the kingdom of God being rejected. But we also have Herod's rejection of the kingdom. And in Mark chapter 6 here in verses 17 to 19, we read these words. We can go ahead a couple slides, I think, Steve. Uh, next one. Next one. Here we go. For it was Herod who sent out and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. So in this chapter, not only do we see Jesus rejected in his hometown, but we also read about some of the cultural rejection to this message of the kingdom. And what's shocking about this account, specifically in Mark, is how much time Mark gives to it. Mark is known for writing quickly, of, of throwing a whole bunch of events in a very short period of time. Uh, so it's important for us to, to ask the question, well, why does Mark give so much attention here to the death of Jesus. This is a bit of a sidebar, but I think it's really interesting for us as we study this gospel. And the big thing that we see is that Mark is actually foreshadowing the death of Jesus. It's a fascinating account if you look at it in detail. We see multiple parallels between the death of John and the death of Jesus. One we might point out is that Pilate, who's the one who calls for Jesus' death, is a lot like Herod. Both of them are hesitating to bring harm to Jesus. John's death in this account is orchestrated by someone who doesn't have the power to execute him. Well, that's a lot like Jesus' death. With the religious leaders working in the background, orchestrating uh, the death of Jesus, but not being able to carry it out themselves. What's fascinating too is that we see in both cases that the death is ordered under pressure or fear of consequence. So we have Herod, who's afraid of humiliating himself in front of his guests. And we have Pilate, who is afraid of an uprising within the Jews. He's afraid of the political pressures. And though neither of them think that Jesus or John should be killed, they both order them killed because of the pressure. And in addition to these, both Jesus's and John's bodies are tended to by disciples who come and take the body from one place to another. So we have in this story Mark taking the time to point out to us, not only foreshadowing the death of Jesus, 
but also linking the person of John to the ministry of Jesus, which is very significant. And why is that? Well, because the question that Mark is seeking to answer is who is Jesus? And by establishing this relationship between John and Jesus, we see um, a fulfillment in the person of John being the one like Elijah. And the prophets talked about one like Elijah coming before the Messiah. So here Mark is affirming that. Later in Mark chapter 10, Jesus makes that even more clear. And we'll talk about that when we get there. So that's a bit of a sidebar, but important for us to note in our study of Mark. But we see in this that the death of John is an example of people not liking the kingdom message. John's message to repent and believe. His message to Herod that the relationship he was in was wrong. They were not welcome. Where the kingdom of God sought to make a difference. Ultimately, it was rejected. And this is the climate that Jesus and his disciples are working in. Well, I have to ask, can you relate to experiencing rejection because of your faith? Can you relate to Jesus' experience where he, he comes home and, and God's been doing some amazing things and instead of supporting and encouraging him, his family kind of turns their back on him. His friends that he grew up with turn their backs on him. Can you relate to a culture that's hostile towards your beliefs? How do you respond In either case, it can feel difficult to continue on as Christians. In either case, we might shy away from telling others about the good news of Jesus. In either case, we might resolve to say that, well, my faith is, you know, it's just me and God. I don't really need to tell other people about it. How does Jesus respond? What might we expect him to do? Jesus does not pack up, he does not quit his ministry, and he certainly does not keep quiet. Jesus responds to opposition by engaging in mission. He engages even more. He presses on. Opposition shouldn't keep us from mission. Opposition shouldn't keep us from mission. Well, in this passage, I believe Jesus gives us some extremely helpful notes on ways that we can begin to engage in mission. Because I think what happens for us is we get going on in life and and, and we can miss that we're on mission for Jesus. We can miss that our lives are meant to be about God's glory and His kingdom. But friends, as we unpack the good news of Jesus, we see that there's this all-encompassing reality of it. That Jesus' invitation is not just to think a certain way, but to become a certain type of person. That Jesus calls us to become like Him. To engage in life as He calls us to, which is the way that God has designed us to engage in life. So here in this passage, I just want to unpack four principles for engaging in mission that Jesus gives to His disciples. To His disciples. Uh, The first is that His disciples were sent out in groups. The disciples were sent out in groups. Verse 7 reads, And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two. It's so easy for us to think that 
we are walking along as Christians in our lives on our own. But that's not at all how it's supposed to be. And that's not how God has called us to be. But I'm sure many of you can relate to feeling alone. Be it in a, your, in a certain family setting or be it at work. You might feel like you're the only Christian, the only one who believes. And when you're feeling alone, how are you supposed to engage in mission? That's a good question. Jesus here sends them out two by two. There's something practical about this. Uh, back in Deuteronomy chapter 19, we understand that the law taught that one witness was never enough. You always needed two witnesses. So by having two people go out, their testimonies are affirmed. The testimony of one man was scrutinized. But the testimony of two, uh, they could affirm and believe the account that they were talking about. So there's a practical element to being going out two by two. But in addition to this, there's so many benefits. Uh, for us today, if we choose to engage in mission alongside other people, uh, we have accountability. We have people to keep us on track. We have people who can look at the way we're doing things and say, hey, I want to encourage you. That was awesome. That was great. But we also have people who say, hey, you know, how's that thing going? How's your relationship with Jesus? How are you doing at sharing your faith at work or in your family? How is your prayer life? We see by having an intentional relationships with others, encouraging us in our faith, our mission is strengthened. For us here at TCC, we often will talk about triads. And triads is just this idea of you or I going and finding two other people and engaging uh, in, in our faith together. A really good way to think of triads is very it's saying that it's as easy as three, two, one. It's as easy as three, two, one. And this isn't TCC's because I think this is totally brilliant. Um, this isn't mine. So, um, But three, two, one. It's three people, two hours, for two hours, one time each month. Three people for two hours, one time each month. And it's setting aside that time to get together to to ask these questions about one another's faith. To see how one another is doing. To see how they're doing in mission. To help one another realize that they are not alone. And just as a caveat to this, I think one time each month would be a bare minimum. But it's really the heart of this is finding those people that you can text. Those people you can call. Those people who you know will be praying for you. Secondly, Jesus sends out the disciples with the resources they need to accomplish the work that they're given. They're sent out with resources needed to do the work. Uh, we keep reading here in verse 7 that he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now I want you to imagine you are the disciples. Um, last week, uh, Pastor Norb preached out of Mark chapter 5. And Jesus has just delivered a man of demons who was uh, breaking chains. And then Jesus is, is going and he, he raises a dead girl to life. He heals another girl from bleeding. And now Jesus is saying to his disciples, okay, your turn. <laughs> Be like, um, I don't know, Jesus. I, I don't think I can do that. Uh, thanks for asking, but <laughs> I'm going to take a pass on this one. <laughs> but that's not what happened. But why is that? Jesus resourced the disciples with what they needed to do the work that he was calling them to do. Specifically in this text, we see that Jesus gives them the authority that they need to cast out demons. In the same way, we have been given God's Spirit. 
And God's Spirit is at work in our lives, empowering us. Enabling us to do the things that Jesus has called us to do. And it's easy for us at times to read the Gospels and say, yeah, but but that's Jesus. He's the Son of God. But friends, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit living inside of you and me. That same Spirit that Jesus was operating under to heal the sick and deliver people from spiritual oppression is the same Spirit that you and I have living inside of us. And as we read the New Testament, we learn things about God's Spirit. That each one of us have gifts of the Spirit. That God's Spirit can empower us with knowledge. That God's Spirit can help us to be discerning. That God's Spirit can give us wisdom, confidence. But I think in operating with God's Spirit requires us to listen. It requires us to slow down, to listen and receive from Jesus all that He has for us. To wait on Him. That when we're up against a difficult situation, instead of just dealing with it in our own resources, in our own strength, slowing down and saying, okay, Jesus, how should I deal with this situation? What do you have for me? The third thing we read about in this text is that Jesus sends the disciples out dependent on God. The disciples were sent out dependent on God. In verse 8, we read that he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to, and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Jesus here is, is asking them to do something that I would find incredibly, incredibly intimidating. He tells them that they need to rely on their faith. They need to rely on the hospitality of others. That they need to rely on God. No bread, no bag, no money, no second garment. And it's funny about the second garment because if they went to a town where they couldn't find a place to stay, that second garment was kind of like a sleeping bag. It was something that, that would have kept them warm if they had to sleep outside. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't take that either. And I can just imagine the disciples hearing Jesus say this and them thinking to themselves like, Jesus, I wasn't very sure about healing or casting out demons, but you know, I, I thought that I could nail this whole traveling thing. Like I had this packing list ready to go. I had this under control. And now you're telling me not to bring anything? No. Jesus wanted them to be dependent on him. Well, how does this play out for us? Well, I don't think, or maybe some of us are, but I don't think that any of us here are are heading out on a big itinerant mission to travel Canada, go city to city declaring the message of Jesus. If you are, let me know and I'll pray for you because that sounds exciting. Um, But how does this play out for us? Who People who have homes, who are settled in Edmonton, who have closets full of clothes. What's Jesus getting at here? Well, I think what we see in this passage is that the disciples allowed themselves to experience need that made them dependent on God. Which makes me ask the question of myself. What disciplines can we have in our lives that cause us to be more dependent on God? 
See, what Jesus is getting here isn't at this idea of them going and putting their faith necessarily to the test or, or going on this great adventure. More, he's getting at this need for them to depend on God. Us engaging in mission, us engaging in life as Jesus has called us to, requires us to depend on God. So often when we encounter problems, we want to do everything in our power to fix the problems and make things better. But Jesus is telling the disciples to take the resources that they have in their hands and put them aside. Jesus is telling them to choose dependence over independence. And that invitation comes to us as well. Uh, We spent time in this past Equip discipleship class that was called the Life to the Full, talking about disciplines um, that allow us to be dependent on God. We called them disciplines of abstinence. We talked about things like fasting, silence, and solitude. That in these disciplines, we have the opportunity to create space in our lives that we're waiting for God to fill. A song that I've been listening to uh, over and over again lately, uh, he has this fantastic line where he says, Maybe less is more than we really need. And maybe empty is a place for us to receive. (laughs) And, And I love that line. That the places in us that we perceive to be empty, we we seek to fill it with things because we don't like the emptiness. But when we choose to empty ourselves, when we choose to set aside our resources and the things that make us confident in our abilities or whatever it is, when we choose to fast, when we choose silence, when we choose solitude, we create space that God can fill. It teaches us to be dependent on Him. Well, I became an uncle this, this past Monday to this little guy. Uh, his name's Daniel. And uh, those of you who know my brother, Donovan, uh, this is his little guy. This is their second. And I just love little babies, hey? They're, just, they're so sweet. But man, Daniel is completely dependent on his parents. Completely. He can't feed himself. He can't clothe himself. He can't change his diaper be pretty amazing hey (laughs) anyway but this picture we have of little baby Daniel this baby fully dependent on God Jesus invites us to be like little children to be fully dependent on him and I think for us in this day and age a big part of that is choosing disciplines choosing making deliberate choices To create that empty space that we allow God to fill. So that we can experience God filling those places. Well, the last thing I notice in this text is that the disciples are sent out with a method. The disciples are sent out with a method. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Well, this was a very difficult passage for me. I started really thinking about and studying it. This idea of shaking the dust off the feet uh, was a practice of the Jews to remove foreign dust. This was a way to disassociate themselves from the pollutants of foreigners. So in a modern world, let's say that I went to Calgary... 
And before I left Calgary, I went and I started shaking off. I want to get that Calgary dust off my arms. I want to get the Calgary air out of my lungs. Ugh, Calgary. <laughs> um, I, I'm calling this religious snobbery. <laughs> um, <laughs> I might get in trouble for saying that. But this action of removing the dust from the feet was a practice of the Jews to basically say, I'm disassociating myself from you pagan people. I don't want you to contaminate me. So that's what's going on there in their culture. Now, the reason I struggle so much with this is I'm like, Jesus, why are you instructing your disciples to engage in what Adam's calling an act of religious snobbery? Well, Jesus is instructing the disciples to do this. He's having them, when he has them do this, they were declaring to the village that they were foreigners to God. So it'd be like someone coming into our church and saying to all of you, you guys don't know God. You don't know Jesus. And then leaving. We'd all be like, huh? Excuse me? Come again? And one commentator talking about this passage, he sums it up basically by saying that Jesus was instructing the disciples to do this practice to make these people think. Very simply, he wants them to think. So the disciples, if they come and they, they preach the message of the kingdom, that message isn't received, they're trying to do healing, maybe that's not happening. The disciples are instructed to do this action as a way to make them think. The purpose was not to condemn them, but rather an action that may help them consider repentance. It's kind of like a parable. It's kind of like them doing something in such a way that made everyone stop and think. Because if someone came into our church and said, you don't follow Jesus, we might be offended by that, but that might actually make us go, huh, am I following Jesus? So this action of saying, do you know what? I'm dusting, the, I'm getting this dust off of me. To the Jewish people, they're looking at them and saying, wait a minute, that's what we do to foreigners. Are they calling us foreigners? But we're Jews, we're God's children. And the whole purpose of that was to make them think. So how do we do this in our day and age? You know, you, you go into your office at work and before you leave at the end of the day, you go like this and then you walk out the door. No, that's not what Jesus is telling us to do. I believe that we do this by faithfully living as God has called us to live. As this action of the disciples was meant to provoke the Jewish communities to think, so too our actions and our behaviors, as we are faithful to living as Jesus has called us to, should cause other people to think. Our lives should be different than the lives of those in our culture. It's very simple. The choices that we make, the decisions that we, we make, the, the way that we choose to treat people, the way that we handle our finances, the way that we take time to be with people that other people don't want to be with, the way that we take God's kingdom message and declare it in our homes, in our workplaces, on the streets, through our actions, through our words. It's supposed to make people think. This reminds me of 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter writes to the churches, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, and always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, 
Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So Peter here is recognizing that the way that Christians live is different than the way of the world. And that the way that they live is actually a testimony to those around them. And that as they live the way that God has called them to live, it's going to make people ask questions. Peter is inviting us to be ready to give answers when people ask those questions. There's also a sense in this part of um, our text where Jesus is telling the disciples that there's a time to move on. That the disciples were to show up and, and do what they needed to do to be faithful to God, but to trust the results into God's hands. When it comes to us sharing the good news of Jesus, we do our part. But ultimately, we trust God's Spirit to lead people to Himself. So these were the four things I pulled out of this text for us this morning. That the disciples were sent out in groups of two. That they were sent out with the resources needed to do the work. That they were sent out dependent on God. And that they were sent out with a method. We get to verse 12 here in our text We read that, so they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Friends, here is the mission. If you choose to accept it. To declare God's kingdom message in word and deed. To participate in the ministry of Jesus. To be people who do not compromise on love, kindness. To be people who push back darkness. All in Jesus' name. But we do this in groups. We do this in the company of friends. We do this in the resources that God has given us. We do this as dependent children. And we do this in the way that Jesus is leading us to do it. This can be so difficult, so disappointing at times. And it's easy to feel as though we labor in vain. I came across a a story that I'm guessing will be familiar to some of us. A story about starfish. And there's a man walking along a beach on which there's thousands of starfish that have been washed up. And all these starfish had been left on the sand by the tide and they were probably going to die from the heat of the sun. And the man sees a little boy who's picking up starfish and throwing them back into the water. And this man wants to come and teach this little boy a lesson and give him some wisdom. And so he gets to him and he says, Little boy, surely such an industrious and kind-hearted boy could find something better to do with your time. Do you really think that what you're doing is going to make a difference? The boy looks up at the man and looks down at a starfish at his feet. He picks up the starfish and as he gently tosses it back into the ocean, he says, it makes a difference to that one. makes a difference to that one. Friends, we engage in mission as we faithfully listen to the voice of God and engage where He has us. That doesn't necessarily mean that we are standing on street corners or or seeing our entire workplace come to know Jesus or beginning revivals or whatever it is. Sometimes it's that faithful presence in one other person's life. It's taking that moment that you have to pray for someone who's sick. 
It's taking time to encourage someone. It's doing it one thing after another, little by little, bit by bit. And it probably won't feel glamorous. It probably won't feel like you're changing the entire world. But as we engage with one person after another, as God's Spirit leads us, we make a difference in one person after another. So my question for us is, how can we proclaim the kingdom of God in our places of influence? How can we be reminded this morning that we are indeed called to be on mission and engaged in the way that we're supposed to? I love how this section concludes in chapter 6, verse 30. That the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And Jesus said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. But we read about this, the disciples had success as they went out in groups. As they went out dependent on God. As they went out and engaged as Jesus called them to engage. They saw amazing things happen. And friends, I really believe that we can too. So as our faith feels opposed, as we feel like maybe we have more reasons not to share our faith than we do have reason to share our faith, as we maybe feel like we're maybe losing friends because of the things that we believe and the things that we do, remember that opposition should not keep us from engaging in mission. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. And we thank you for the energy in the gospel of Mark. As we watch Jesus go place to place, making an amazing difference everywhere he goes. Lord, but we know that that wasn't always received well. And as Jesus calls us to continue in that mission, we too have experienced us engaging that mission, not being received well. But Father, we pray that opposition and and people telling us they don't like what we have to say, Lord, I pray that that wouldn't keep us from engaging in the ways that you have called us to. Jesus, we pray that your Spirit would lead us and guide us to be people who are on mission, to be people who make a difference, to be a people who look around the world and see that things are not right, but choose to get involved in being part of the solution in Jesus' name. Father, would you help us to do that? This week, Lord, as we engage in life as as you've given it to us, Lord, may we be a people making a difference. We just praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.